The fall is one of my favorite times of year. I love the colors that come out in the early fall. I love the brisk weather that starts to take hold and it makes you feel nice and awake in the morning. I, I love fall for another reason, and that's because it really is a time of year when we tend to go back and refocus a little bit on the basics. Summer often ends up being a little bit of a, a reset switch that, that breaks the year up and, and, and causes us to reevaluate and to say, okay, I, I want to rediscover what it is to to just thrive at what I'm doing. This is true at work. After the summer season where we've done vacationing and other things like that, it can feel like, okay, now I'm, I'm back into the thick of things, I'm back into the daily grind, and I, I have to kind of rediscover the basics of what it means to do my job and to do it well. It's true for students who are going back to school. This is review season, where you have to go back and try and rediscover those things that you really did know back in the spring, but, but now it's been kind of fading away with that summertime off. It's also true uh, for those who are doing moves. Shoshana and I just moved house again 
Uh, this is, I think, house number six in seven years of marriage or something like that for us. And this is the first time we've had to move on September 1st. And we discovered September 1st really is moving day here in Peterborough. <laughs> there was tons of moving going on around the city. We had great difficulty getting the U-Haul. Uh, we were down at Ikea on Friday, and it was a zoo. It was just packed, like people going every which direction. You could tell it was mostly students with their parents kind of helping them get situated in residence or other places because September is when a lot of people move into their new place. And, and moving is kind of an exciting thing for me because of the fact that it allows you to get back to the basics of what it means to build a house. You get to kind of determine how do we lay this place out so that it's functional, so that we can host people, so that we can enjoy the, the benefits of having a nice place to live in, and we can get settled in and discover new routines and stuff like that. And that's something that a lot of people experience come fall. It's time to move into a house and, and really resituate yourself and, and get settled. Fall is a time where we get back to the basics. And that's true around here at Auburn as well. We tend to take this season as an opportunity to get back to the basics of what it is to be a part of the life of this church here. Next week, we're going to talk about our mission and talk about how people over the summer have been fulfilling the mission we believe God has given us here at Auburn and, and within the church as a whole. Two weeks from now is going to be our kickoff Sunday where we talk about our vision and talk about where we think God is leading us this year and, and, and what we think that we need to be doing to fulfill the vision that God has laid on the heart of the leaders here. And, and, and those are really basics of what it means to be part of Auburn. But today as I was praying about how do we, how do we talk on Labor Day Sunday, what, what should we be looking at, really what God pressed on me was it's a good opportunity to look at the basics not just of the church, but the basics of our very faith. In fact, what I'd like to talk about this morning is that word itself, faith. Within Christianity, it's widely known that one of the things that makes us different than other world religions is this idea of salvation by faith or righteousness by faith. We see it spelled out very clearly in the New Testament that because Jesus came as God in the flesh, and he lived among us, and he served us, and he even laid down his life so that we could be forgiven for sin, that we can be saved by trusting in him. That by faith in Jesus Christ, we can be saved from sin. And we see laid out in Romans the idea that this isn't a new thing in the life of Jesus. It's made clearer in the life of Jesus but it's not a new thing. And, and I had Arnie read a passage in Romans 4 that I think spells that out very clearly, where Paul looks back at the life of Abraham, and he shows that actually this idea of righteousness by faith is how God always intended to work in the world, that before he gave all of the laws and commandments that he gave to Moses, already he was walking in step with Abraham and inviting him to have faith in him, and that that was the means by which he declared Abraham right with him. That it was by trusting in God's promises that Abraham was declared righteous. And at the very end of that passage that Arnie read, we're told very clearly that's not just something that's true then. It's not just something that's true in Jesus' day. This is something that Paul thinks is an enduring principle. He writes, it's the words that it was counted to him were not written for Abraham's sake alone, but for all, ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, we can, we can have ourselves counted as righteous before God, as having good standing with him by faith. And this is, this is a basic tenet of the Christian faith. But even though it's something that's basic, I think it is something that can still be confusing. Human beings are complicated creatures. We, we have strong emotions that can get a hold of us. We are very cognitive in a way that no other species is, and we can think all sorts of deep philosophical thoughts. We're also beings of action. We're corporeal beings that, that can do amazing things. One of the things that sets human beings apart is our ability to use tools and to, to use science to do great things in this world. I think it's worth asking, when it comes to this idea of faith, what are we talking about exactly? Is it an emotional thing? Is it, a, is it a physical thing, something that we do? Is it something that we have to understand with our brain? 
What does it mean to have faith and to, to be counted as righteous through faith? And I think when we, when we ask that question, there's no better place to look than Jesus' own ministry and some of the people that he praised for having great faith. All summer long, we've been looking at different stories from Scripture and, and some of the things that they can teach us about our own journey. And so we're going to actually look at three different stories here today, two in Mark and one in Luke. And we're going to ask that question, what does it mean to have faith? And I think we'll see in each of these stories, we see what faith isn't, and then we can see what faith is. And ultimately, what faith is, I believe, is trusting in God more than we trust in ourselves. Let's pray, and then we'll look at those different stories. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the time we've had in worship already this morning. Father, don't let us cease to worship you. Even as we shift away from musical worship into reading your word and learning from it, I pray that each of us would still press in and receive from you what we can. Let our hearts be glad in being able to hear your word and to be transformed here this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The first story I'd like to consider is the story of a woman who has a physical disease. This woman comes up in the middle of another story. She's kind of almost an interruption in this passage. You see, this man who was a wealthy man in Jesus' neighborhood came to him and he said, my daughter is really sick. He had heard that Jesus was a healer and so he asked him, Jesus, can you come with me and can you heal my daughter? I think she's on the verge of death and I really need you to do something to intervene. And so Jesus and his followers go with this man and, and Jesus has indicated to him, yeah, I'm happy to do this for you. And as they're walking through town, his fame and popularity results in a great crowd flocking around him and he, they can barely move and they're pressing their way through, but it's a tight space. And we're told in the midst of this crowd, there's a woman. We don't know how old exactly she is. What we do know is that she was an outcast. And that's because of what the author tells us, Mark tells us about this woman. And that's that she had been bleeding for 12 years instead of getting a regular menstrual cycle. Now, according to Old Testament law, women who were on the menstrual cycle were unclean and needed to stay away. And so in Jesus' time, women who had this type of issue were, were, were supposed to stay away from everybody else. They couldn't have physical contact with them. They were told that they were unclean and that God probably was judging them for something that they had done because this was something that nobody should have to go through. And here's this woman who's kind of keeping herself hidden up and she's in the midst of this crowd. And we're told that she's been to a lot of different physicians. She's gone around and she's asked a lot of different people who are supposed to be healers and supposed to be helping with physical conditions, how do I deal with this problem? How do I get it fixed? And Mark actually uses a phrase, he says, she had suffered much under those physicians. They had tried all sorts of things, things that weren't nice for her, and she had suffered a great deal under them. But instead of getting better, she had just gotten worse. But this woman, she, she was trying to pay attention to anything that might help her out. In fact, I get the sense she might be even a little bit of a superstitious woman because she knows something that was going around in Jesus' day. And that's that the Messiah was prophesied to have the ability to heal through his very garments. Now, we don't know exactly when this Jewish tradition started, but sometime around Jesus' day, there was an understanding that all those passages in the Old Testament that talked about there being healing in the wings of the Messiah were actually a reference to the tassels that he wore. On traditional Jewish garments, there's little dangly cords that are braided. And, and the understanding that developed among a common people was that just being able to touch one of those tassels would be a healing thing. And this woman, as she's standing in this crowd, she's hearing about this healer, Jesus. She says, you know what? I bet if I could just touch his garments, if I could just get one of those tassels to brush my finger, then I'll be healed. So she makes her way over 
pressing through the crowd, risking some great social embarrassment and maybe even some strict punishment for doing this while she's unclean. And she reaches out a hand and touches the hem of his robe. And we're told Jesus feels power go out of him. And he looks around and he says, what just happened? Somebody just accessed my power. Somebody touched me. And his disciples are like, come on, Jesus, everyone's touching you. What are you talking about? Jesus says, no, no, I mean it. Somebody touched me. And he he keeps looking around and he finds this woman. And we're told that she comes out and she tells the truth. And she's able to say, I'm healed. I'm healed. I touched you and I was right. I'm healed. And Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. He lauds her for having faith. Now, when we ask what is faith, I think this story reveals us one thing that's really important. And that's that faith is not primarily a matter of right understanding about who Jesus is and how he works. Again, this woman's attitude is almost superstitious towards Jesus. It's kind of like she's saying, well, if I throw salt over my shoulder, nothing bad will come to me. She seems to really be focused on on this idea of the garment having healing power, which I think most of us would say, that seems a little bit silly. This is not a woman of great understanding. She is not a theologian. She's not somebody who's looking at all the Old Testament passages and parsing them and, and able to understand here's exactly who the Messiah is and what his nature is going to be like. She has very limited understanding. And yet, despite that, she's praised for having faith. Why is that? I think it's because she trusted in Jesus even in her limited understanding. She realized she didn't have the understanding to deal with her disease. And so, looking beyond her own understanding, she turned to Jesus. She trusted in Jesus more than herself. So then a second story. This one is about a a woman who's just called a sinner. It's found in the book of Luke. And again, Jesus is with somebody who's pretty respectable at the start of this story. He gets invited over by one of the Pharisees, one of the local religious leaders, and he's asked to eat with him. This is an honor to be invited into somebody's house and eat with them. And we're told that he's sitting there and he's reclining at the table and a woman who's a sinner, we're told, learned that Jesus was in this house. Now the tradition was in Jesus' day that people from the village who were poor were allowed to come into houses and they could kind of gather around the table a little bit and they could eat whatever scraps fell on the floor. So she probably came in alongside whatever beggars were there. But when she saw Jesus and she recognized who he was, maybe she heard somebody utter his name. And she called to mind all of the things she had heard about him and the message of grace and forgiveness that he was preaching. She comes over to him and she takes a a flask of ointment, very expensive perfume, probably left to her by a family member and probably intended for a burial ceremony. And she weeps and she pours it on his feet and she wipes it with her hair. And it says she's kissing his feet and caressing his feet and touching him out of gratitude. Now this offends the Pharisee. It makes him actually question Jesus' nature and the claims that people are making about him. Because he knows this woman's reputation. He knows that she's a sinner. We don't know exactly what type of sin it is, but we can read between the lines and guess that probably it's sexual sin of some kind. Because he's offended that Jesus would even let her touch him. We're told that he says, if he knew who she was, if he was really a prophet the way people say, he would never let her touch him that way. Because it's a very sensual way that she's touching him. It seems almost like she's trying to seduce him or, or at least demonstrate her love in a very sensual way. And the Pharisee looks at that and he says, that's, that's disgusting. 
How can Jesus allow that? But Jesus, knowing his thoughts, he says, Simon, I have something to ask you. And he, he gives him a parable. He says to him, if there's a moneylender who has two people who have great debt, one of them has a, has a smaller amount, one of them has a greater amount, and he forgives one, and then he forgives the other, who do you think is going to love him more? And the Pharisee responds by saying, oh, well, it's probably the one who got forgiven the greater debt. And Jesus says, exactly. And that's exactly what's going on right here. What you don't realize is that this woman understands. I've forgiven her debt, and she has a great debt to be forgiven. You haven't paid me any significant attention. In fact, you've acted like you're over me, inviting me in and treating me like you, you have something to offer me. But she comes in knowing she owes everything to me, and she, she gives up this expensive perfume, and she shows me affection in the only way she knows how. She's the one who really gets it. And again, he looks at her and he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Again, when we look at this and we ask ourselves, what is this faith that Jesus is praising? Well, we know one thing. It's not perfect actions. What she's doing isn't really an appropriate way to display affection to Jesus. She still hasn't lost all of her old habits. That's okay. Jesus says that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that she recognizes she's forgiven and she's turned to me instead of her actions. In other words, she's trusted in me more than herself. He's rebuking the Pharisee because the Pharisee thinks... My actions are good enough. I can earn God's favor. Whereas here's a woman who recognizes I can't trust in that. I know my own brokenness. I trust in Jesus more than I trust in myself. Then there's the third story. Again, going back to the book of Mark. And here we have a man whose son has a demonic spirit inside of him. This scene, Jesus arrives at a little late. His disciples and Pharisees are trying to figure out how to cure this boy. And they're kind of arguing about it a little bit when Jesus shows up. And so he says, what's going on? And the man whose son has the demon steps forward and he says, my, my son has this demon. It keeps on throwing him into a fire. It tries to destroy him. We're at wit's end. We don't know what to do. And your followers, they're not able to get rid of this demon. Now, Jesus talks to the boy briefly. He asks him to be called before him. And right away, the convulsion happens. He throws himself onto the ground. And he asks the father, how long has this been happening? He says, from childhood. This has been a maybe years, maybe even decades-long process where they've been facing this situation with their son. He says, over and over and over again, the Spirit keeps on casting him into fire, into water, trying to destroy him. And Jesus says this very simple phrase to him. You see, the man says, if you can, can you please possibly help him? And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And the Father has a real deep moment of honesty here. I love this phrase that he gives in return. After having suffered years of this and, and trusted and trusted that God would bring some solution into his life, he hears Jesus say that. All things are possible for one who believes. And his response is, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. In other words, what he's saying is, I barely know whether I can even trust in God anymore. I, I can barely hold on to any sort of hope that there might actually be a solution to this. My emotions are not in this. But because you say so, because you tell me if I ask, 
it will happen. I'm going to make the decision anyways to trust yet again. I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus rebukes the spirit, and it leaves. The boy falls down, and everybody thinks, wow, he's just dead now. And Jesus picks him back up, and it says he's okay. He's okay. Again, looking at this story, we, we can see what faith isn't. Faith isn't having great confidence emotionally in God. It's not, it's not like we have to get ourselves to a place where we feel great and we just know in our heart of hearts that God is great. Sometimes we do that in the church. We try and will ourselves to, to feel this way. And here's a man who's at his last rope. He doesn't feel hardly anything except despair. And yet he's lauded for having faith, for having the right kind of belief to save his son and to save himself from that situation. What kind of faith does he have? Answer, he had the kind of faith that was willing to trust Jesus instead of his emotions. He was willing to trust Jesus rather than the despair that was welling up inside of him. So then faith isn't primarily a matter of our intellect. It's not primarily a matter of our actions. It's not primarily a matter of our emotions. Certainly we want to be the kind of people who understand Jesus as best as we can. Certainly we want to be the kind of people who act out our faith We're told that faith without actions is dead in Scripture. Certainly we want to be the kind of people who feel a great desire for God, who love Him, as Jesus is, with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. But faith itself, faith is more basic than that. Faith is the starting point to allowing all of those other things to take place. Faith really is just a basic, bare-bones choice that we have to make in the midst of our circumstances. We have to ask ourselves, do I choose to believe, do I choose to accept that Jesus saves, that he can rescue me from my sins, that he can rescue me from my failure to understand, that he can rescue me from circumstances that beat down my emotion? Do I accept that Jesus saves or not? And that's a decision we just have to make before any of the rest seems to take place. I think that's both a daunting thing and a freeing thing. It's daunting because it means we really don't have a lot to do ourselves. It kind of strips us. It makes us a little bit powerless means we're, we're, we're stopping relying on the things that we know we can control to a certain extent, and we're letting go of all that control. And that's a scary thing. But at the same time, it's freeing because we know all of those other things let us down. We know that we aren't knowledgeable enough, that we aren't good enough, that we aren't strong enough emotionally to face everything that this life throws at us. And so it's freeing to be able to just surrender and say, God, I know you can save me, and I can't. That's the decision we're called to. And it's a decision that we make over and over and over again. It's not just a one-time decision. It's something that each and every day we have to make the choice to say, I will trust in God, not in my own capacities. Now, to close off, I'd like to actually invite you to just close your eyes for a minute. We don't often do this kind of thing around here, but as I was preparing for the sermon, I really felt like because it is fall, a season of fresh starts, I just wanted to invite anybody here who has this feeling that they need to come back to Christ in faith just to have an opportunity to demonstrate that a little bit. So if everybody wants to close their eyes, nobody's going to be looking, and I just want to ask, is there anybody in the room here that I can be praying for that feels like they've been trusting more in their knowledge than in Christ? Or anybody who feels like they've been trusting in their actions and trying to 
prove themselves and do what they need to, to be saved rather than trusting in Christ. Or anybody who's, who's been deceiving themselves into thinking, I need to just emotionally feel the right things and that'll, that'll be it. Then I'm in a good place with God rather than just trusting in Christ. So if you want to just put up a hand if you're in that position and you feel like you need to come back in faith. Okay, thank you. I'd like to say a word of prayer for those who raise their hands and then we'll move into worship and communion. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you. We thank you that you are good. We thank you that you save. We thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to save us and to make it clear how much we need you to be our savior. Father, we trust in you more than we trust in ourselves. We recognize we cannot do it on our own. And so I ask that we would be daily reminded of your goodness and grace and the fact that you can save us. I pray for those who raise their hands, Father. You know where they're at in life. And I just invite you into their lives in a fresh way right now as they, as they commit themselves in faith to you. And ask, would you honor them in that? Would you rescue them from the circumstances they face? And would you give them peace about knowing nothing they can do will ever separate them from your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. For the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me Hallelujah. 
One of the basics of the Christian faith is what we call testimony. That is, stories of individuals who have encountered God and seen His grace rescuing them from their sin and from their circumstances. And uh, today, I think it's important to remember that testimony actually has great power for us to help remind us of God's goodness and also for others to help them see that He really is faithful, that He really can be trusted. I think, I think that more than anything else, the stories of God's grace is the thing that has helped people to make that decision to, to grab on, to cling, to turn to Christ instead of themselves, is, is just simple stories of seeing God's grace at work in people's lives. So I'd just like to invite you here, before we take communion, would you share, how is it that you know God is faithful? How do you know? What do you see in scripture? What do you see in history? What do you see in your own life that helps you know God really is trustworthy? <laughs> Come on, kid, you just share your whole life story. <laughs> no, that's exactly it. Being able to look back and say, last time I was in this circumstance, last time I was doubting, last time I was fearful, he came through. Absolutely. That's a vital element of our faith. Thank you, Arnie. That's a great example. Yeah. That can be sometimes even harder than trusting in our own life, right? When a friend, a family member, a, a child of ours is struggling through something, and to feel that powerlessness, and then, then to be able to look and go, but I've seen him do it for them before. I know he did it for me. I know he's done it for them. I can trust him with my loved ones. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, being able to reassure others, I believe God is good, even if you're not sure. That's a huge help in trying circumstances. Thank you. And we've all had people do that for us too, I suspect, in those moments of difficulty. There was somebody who said, keep on holding on. 
Thanks, Liz. And I think it would be easy to hear that and kind of go, wow, you know, you had the feeling of a hug. That's not very big, but amazingly, that's, that's huge, right? Those little gestures that God will give us in the midst of those circumstances. One of my favorite passages is, is uh, Lamentations 3.23, which says, Great is your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. And I think that's a promise that each day he'll give us the little bit we need to get through. Sometimes it's a little thing, sometimes it's a big thing. But day by day we can count on his mercies. Even if it's a great big bear hug from nowhere. <laughs> Please. Thank you. The author in Hebrews states that very clearly, right? Let us not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, right? That is a commandment we should be doing. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. And I, I think the reminder of the cage is a great analogy for what faith looks like, too, since we're on that topic. What, what is faith? How do, we, how do we understand faith? Getting on that cart Right there, it's not dependent on your feelings. It's not dependent on your knowledge of how that cart works. It's not dependent on whether you do the right things or whatever on, once you get onto that cart. It's whether that cart itself is strong enough to hold you. Right? That's the thing that saves, the, the, the thing that matters most. Is, is that chain strong enough? Is that floor strong enough? And as we, as we turn to communion and, and we celebrate afresh, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, what we do is we say, we understand. It's not me. It's Jesus that saves. Is he strong enough? Is he sufficient? And as we take these emblems, we say, yes, I believe he is. That he's enough to save me from sin, to reconcile me to God, to give me life in abundance in a world filled with sin, filled with darkness. Let's pray and let's take the emblems together now as an act of faith. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for this time we've had to encourage one another, to remind each other, to look to you, our Lord and Savior, for our salvation. As we take these emblems, would you bless them and would you, would you 
continue to build in us a confidence that we can turn away from ourselves and focus on you and trust in you to be our savior from everything that we face. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Ushers, come forward, please.